0: John
1: Copenhagen and Al Warren heard on KCBY 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3
0: FM
2: Riverside, and 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Oh, welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, and joining me today is Michael Butterfield. How are you doing, Michael?
3: I'm doing good. How are you?
2: I'm I'm well.
3: I'm glad to hear that.
2: I'm so well. I'm happy. So, um, here we are, and we're going to talk about Zodiac. Once again. Once again, I've heard of him. I think he <laughs> uh, um, isn't he like a some sort of a disco diva. <laughs>
3: No, I think you might have him confused with someone else. You know, I'd hope that you were paying attention during our previous calls, but I guess maybe, you know, you were taking a nap or something. But, yeah, the Zodiac is well-known, one of the uh, most well-known serial killers in history, and uh, this year is the 50th anniversary of the first Zodiac crimes. Uh,
2: Yeah, it's just I, uh, I get so many comments that he wasn't real, so I just...
3: Oh, I see. Yeah, it's easy to fall victim to that uh, propaganda line that there was no Zodiac. That seems to be a mildly popular conspiracy theory these days, but I don't, of course, subscribe to that. Oh, you're no fun. <laughs> I think the Zodiac really existed, so that makes for a very different kind of conversation.
2: <laughs> well, that's just no good. So what's, what, what happens for 50 years of a Zodiac? Like, Do we have a party?
3: Well, I imagine that some people uh, might feel that way. I know there's some uh, people who are critical of people who show up at the anniversary events, at the crime scenes and things like that. Um, Of course, there's not much to celebrate. The case remains unsolved, and the families of the victims are still waiting for justice and some sense of what you might call closure. Um, but the case remains unsolved 50 years later. We still have no idea who is responsible for these crimes, and uh, we're looking at some efforts to use DNA to possibly solve the case, but without some news about that and some breakthrough, um, we're looking at another year of no answers.
2: So, I, well, I don't criticize people that want to go on anniversaries and do things. I just wonder... I haven't they got anything else better to do that's all
3: well you know there are a lot of people who are very critical of some of the people who show up at these events because they say that they're exploiting the deaths of these innocent victims and while i guess it's easy to uh agree with that criticism in some ways i think that people who do that the people who go to those events would tell you that in their hearts they're there to honor the victims They're trying to remember the victims on a day that is often spent celebrating in some ways the killer himself instead of remembering the people who died so that he could become a legend. So, you know, I, I agree with some of the criticisms about that. And certainly, you know, you would wonder if someone doesn't have something better to do than show up at a place where someone was murdered. But I think a lot of those people would argue that that's their way of trying to pay their respects.
2: Well, do you really? Do, but do you really think that um, it's paying tribute? I, I mean, I don't know because I write books and I've done shows and and I've been involved in it. I, I just in, and so people will say that that you know to me. Well, we don't. I don't read true crime books because mm-hmm. you know because it's. Uh, why would you want to read that? And it's that's weird. Yeah. yeah. So, so I don't know. Um, I really don't know what to say about that. I'm I'm not sure.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, there are some people who are obsessive and who this is sort of like a social clique kind of thing. But I, you know, again, I try to, I would try to see the best in some people, and I think that a lot of those people who do show up at those things, that's their way of trying to show that they still care about people who are largely forgotten in some ways you know when the 50th anniversary of anything comes around there's obviously a lot of attention around it because it has a nice round number you know 50 when it's the 48th anniversary there's not always as much interest and uh, often the things that you'll see in podcast, tv show documentary things like that they focus on the killer a lot, and trying to remember the victims on these days is a way of trying to make sure they're not forgotten. And I know that there are a lot of people out there who care about these victims and uh, their friends and their family, people who actually knew them. And, you know, it's sort of like a little bit of like what you hear when there's a mass shooting and people say, you know, we're not going to talk about the killer, we're not going to mention his name because we don't want to glorify him or give him the attention that he wants. So I can see some aspect of that playing into these Zodiac Anniversary things as well.
2: I notice that um, it still gets a lot of attention, especially on uh, a lot of the episodes we do, It especially on YouTube, mm-hmm. more so than anything. It really sticks out. Um, but it, there's always sort of a negative uh, thing about the... Uh, Um, zodiac shows a lot of people go on there and talk and and even the last one you you have a ton of comments like i wish i wish they would talk about the real story Mm -hmm. and i I don't know what that means
3: (laughs) that that depends on who's leaving the comment some for some people the the real story is what you were talking about earlier is this hoax idea that there was no zodiac. So, if you're talking about the zodiac as if he existed and the case actually happened, then to them, that's not the real story. And then for other people, they might see something online or see a documentary on television that tells a version of the story that's more in line with some of the books and theories presented by various people accusing suspects. And those Versions of the story are usually tailored to fit that particular theory. So you'll get a version of the Zodiac story that is true in some ways and distorted and fictionalized in others. So they might be saying, what I want to hear is the real story of what happened. And the anniversary of the second Zodiac attack is on July 4th this year. And that's one of the cases that's been buried in myth and rumor and speculation for years. And so someone might be asking, you know, hey, what's the real story behind the shooting at Blue Rock Springs and the murder of Darlene Farron? Because in that case, there's been a lot of confusion created by people who were either related to the victims and seemed to be looking for attention or theorists who wrote books and presented various stories about Darlene Farron and her background in ways that made it seem as if she must have known the killer or that she was killed in some conspiracy because she had witnessed a murder or that she was part of a satanic cult. Uh, There are stories that someone was stalking her in the weeks and months before she died. So there's a lot of confusion around that case. And if someone wants to know what really happened, the best thing that you can do is go look at the police reports go look at the the witness statements the people like Michael Majot, who was there that night um, those are the kinds of things that are going to help you understand the real story so i think maybe we could talk about what really happened that night according to the police reports and then talk a little bit about how the myths have enveloped that story and why so many of them have been debunked
2: yeah so yeah so what what's what is it particularly about that case uh, Darlene Farron that that made that that makes people question so much like what what happened that
3: that confuses people well the story that we got from Michael Majot was that he and Darlene Darlene Farron was 22 years old she was a waitress a wife and mother who lived in Vallejo with her husband Dean Farron they had just had a baby and she was working at this restaurant in Leo where she was very popular, and she made a lot of friends, including men who were interested in her possibly romantically. Um, so she got a lot of attention, and one of those people that she had met was Michael Mageau, who was a teenager with a twin brother who had apparently met Darlene at this restaurant, and they became friends and started spending some time together. Um, and on the night of July fourth, 1969, Darlene got off work, took care of some things, and said that she was going to get some fireworks and she was going to meet her husband at home later after he got off work. And for some reason, she went to Michael Majot's home, picked him up. They were driving around together and decided to go to Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, California. They were sitting in Darlene's Corvair talking when another vehicle pulled up. And then that vehicle drove away. And a few minutes later, what appeared to be the same vehicle returned. A man got out carrying a bright light. He approached the passenger side where Michael was sitting. And before Michael could say anything or do anything, the man pulled out a gun and opened fire and fired several shots into the car. And Michael was hit as he tried to jump into the back seat, and Darlene was wounded also. The man then turned to walk away, and apparently Michael Mageau cried out in pain, and this caused the man to turn around, come back, and fire even more shots into the car. The man then got in his car and drove away. Some passing teenagers found Darlene and Mike, and then they went and called the police. And the ambulance arrived Darlene was taken to the hospital but she died on the way Michael Mageau survived and he did his best to police what happened and to describe the man who shot them and he described this man as uh, I think approximately five foot eight with light brown curly hair um, he seemed he seemed to make enough effort to fire into the car but he didn't make enough effort to make sure they were dead so one wondered what the motive was in the first place and of course michael's story with the newspapers and everything but shortly after the shooting on the night of july 4th or into the early morning hours of july 5th someone called vallejo police department and claimed to be responsible for the shooting the caller described the nine-millimeter ammunition that was used, the location of the attack, and Darlene's car. And according to the dispatcher, Nancy Slover, the caller spoke in a taunting voice as he said bye. And police traced that phone to a phone. Police traced that call to a phone booth, but the man was already gone. Now, in this call, the caller also claimed that he was responsible. For, he said, I also killed those kids last Christmas, I believe. And that seemed to be a direct reference to the murders of two teenagers on Lake Herman Road on December 20th, 1968, about seven months earlier. Uh, Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday were sitting in a car parked in this Lover's Lane area, and someone pulled up, and they were shot and killed. So, of course, this created a lot of controversy in the police department about whether or not they were dealing with what would be called a serial killer. And of course, shortly after that is when there were some more letters, Some, I should say, some letters that showed up. And these letters were sent to three Bay Area newspapers. They were virtually identical handwritten letters, which took credit for the shooting at Blue Rock Springs and the murders on Lake Herman Road and provided some details. And then the writer also provided a cipher, which he claimed would reveal his identity. And the newspapers published the cipher. The cipher was solved by a school teacher named Donald Harden and his wife, Betty. And they determined that the first lines of this cipher read, I like killing people because it's so much fun. Unfortunately, the cipher did not reveal the identity of the killer. The last eighteen characters appeared to be just gibberish. But this of course sparked more controversy because now the person who was claiming to be responsible for these crimes was writing to the newspapers and sending clues and he also threatened to kill again if these ciphers were not published. So this created this fear and panic in the Bay Area. And a lot of people think that because the killer claimed responsibility for the shootings on Lake Herman Road as well, that this somehow distracted the police from investigating the background of Darlene Farron. Essentially, they're saying, well, as soon as they discovered that it was a serial killer, they stopped looking for anybody in Darlene's life who may have been responsible for her murder. So this led to a lot of skepticism about the investigation and over the years there were a lot of stories that started to swirl around the murder of Darlene Farron things that seemed to indicate that there was more to the story than what we were told now if you look at the original police reports you'll see that in the three or so weeks in between when Darlene was murdered and when those first letters began arriving The police actually did investigate Darlene's life. They talked to friends, her family, her co-workers, and other people she had known. And of course, the simple question was always asked, Do you know of anybody who might have had any reason to hurt Darlene? And no one had excuse me. No one could remember anybody who was bothering Darlene, except for one man, a man named George. George was apparently a repeat customer at the restaurant where Darlene worked, and he was very persistent when he made advances toward her. She rejected those advances, and apparently this angered him, and according to one story, he even broke into her home at one time and threatened to rape her. Of course, these stories were not confirmed. We can't say for sure whether these things happened, but the police investigated George, and they eventually interviewed him, he provided an alibi, which was confirmed by his wife for the time of the shooting at Blue Rock Springs Park. And police concluded that he was not involved in the murder. Now, maybe he was involved in the murder, maybe his wife lied for him, we don't know. But at that time, police were satisfied that he had nothing to do with it and they couldn't find any evidence to link him to the crime. So during those first few weeks, police did look for the killer among Darlene's circle of friends and family and acquaintances but they couldn't find any evidence to indicate that she was killed by anyone other than a stranger so in the ensuing years after this when the case became bigger and bigger and bigger because of course you know those first early cipher that first cipher and those first letters were followed up by a subsequent letter which was the first to use the phrase this is the Zodiac speaking and that letter of course launched the Zodiac story as we know it today and there were more letters there were more crimes and this dragged on through until what we believe were the last authenticated Zodiac letters in 1974 and of course being an unsolved case there was a lot of speculation and rumors and stories and gossip that went around for years and one of the things that happened with the case of Darlene Farron was that some of the individuals in her family started telling stories which they did not tell police during the original investigation but were certainly uh, deserving of being reported because of the claims that were being made and I've said this before that Uh, Darlene Farron was in some ways the Laura Palmer of the Zodiac case, and that's a reference to the popular TV series Twin Peaks, which I'm sure you can remember has also been revived now. Um, But that story centered around the murder of a young girl in a small town and the various scandals and conspiracies involving members of the community. So with the case of Darlene Farron, We have these stories that start to surface to make it seem as if there was something happening around Darlene which led to her death. And one of these stories surfaced, I believe, first in 1970 when a popular celebrity psychic showed up in the Bay Area and was communicating with members of Darlene's family. And apparently, I believe, Darlene's mother started claiming that on the night she was killed, Darlene said, you're going to read about me in the newspapers tomorrow. And, of course, there was no elaboration about this or about why she'd be in the newspapers. And then, of course, she was killed, and whatever it was that she was supposed to be in the newspaper for was apparently uh, abandoned and surpassed by the fact that she had been killed. So we don't know what that was supposed to be about, but it is curious to note that nobody mentioned that to police who were actually investigating the murder. And, of course, one of the representatives for this psychic held a press conference and criticized the Vallejo Police Department for not pursuing these stories, which, of course, would be very difficult considering no one ever told them about these stories. Uh, Now, of course, the police did investigate, and the continued investigation into the background of Darlene Barron failed to produce any suspects who seemed viable in her murder. And then, of course, her family at the same time Darlene's family at the same time was also giving police the indication that they believed that Darlene had been killed by her ex-husband. And, of course, police investigated. They tracked down the ex-husband. They talked to him. And he was also given an alibi by his wife, his second wife, who said that she was with him at the time of the shooting at Blue Rock Springs Park and police further investigated and concluded that this man was not involved in the crimes and that he was not responsible for the murder of Darlene Farron. but years later someone found a picture of Darlene Farron with her ex-husband and this picture was circulated all over the internet as if this was some mystery which had to be solved and this was called mystery of the unknown man who is this man you know could he be the killer could he lead to the answers and help us find out who killed Darlene and of course there's never any mystery about it from the beginning it was just Darlene's ex-husband but for some reason the confusion around this photograph uh, increased and over the years people believe that it's somehow a clue to helping solve this mystery when in reality it appears to just be a, a photograph of her standing with her ex- husband it has nothing to do with the case But the stories about Darlene continued in the years that followed her death until finally in the late 1970s, there was a a woman who claimed that she had once been a babysitter for Darlene and that Darlene had at one time mentioned that she had seen this man kill someone and that now this man was following and, and, and stalking her. And this stalker story took on a life of its own after that with other people including Darlene's sisters who started to tell other stories around this stalker that apparently he was at this infamous painting party that happened at the home of Darlene where this mysterious stranger was there and Darlene was afraid of him and things like that and the stories just kept getting bigger and bigger over the years until finally they appeared in a best-selling book written by cartoonist Robert Graysmith called Zodiac that was published in 1986 so after the publication of the book you had other people coming forward and telling stories about this painting party and claiming that they were either there or that some other suspect was there And pretty soon you had this roster of individuals who were supposed to be at this party that was just amazing various suspects and people who knew the victims and others and the story itself of course had to be examined. And when I talked to Darlene's husband, Dean Farron, he made it clear to me that although there was some sort of minor party at his home where people were painting his home, although he said he did most of the paint job himself, he made it clear that the story that was told in this book and these other stories over the years, that that kind of party had not taken place in his home. And, of course, some of these stories were also told by individuals who had some... Credibility problems such as Darlene's sisters. Um, Darlene's sister Pam claimed that Darlene had been stalked by some mysterious stranger, and then Darlene's sister Linda had also talked about somebody. And it turns out that in the mid 1970s, when the Babysitter came forward, some of the sisters identified a particular suspect as being the man that was stalking and bothering Darlene. And police investigated that suspect and could find no evidence linking him to the Zodiac crimes. But in the years that followed, Darlene's sisters, there she had three sisters, and I think collectively between the three of them, they all identified at least six different people as all being the same single individual who had bothered Darlene so you're talking about stories that just snowballed over the years and one of the other aspects of this story with the painting party was that one of the suspects who was named as attending was the prime suspect a convicted child molester named arthur lee allen and according to this story that was in this book and then the story that was told by an informant who had identified allen Alan attended this painting party with his brother and sister-in-law. And I spoke to Alan's sister-in-law, and she stated that she had never attended such a party with or without suspect, and that the story wasn't true, and that the person telling the story was not telling the truth. So the the way that these stories have focused on Darlene over the years, each story builds upon the, the last and makes this bigger and bigger and bigger conspiracy theory that becomes absurd when you start to realize that in order for these stories to be true, all of these factors have to coexist in the same reality at the same time. So <clears throat> I think that, you know, when, when you're asking me how did this get this way, I mean, we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours because there's so much material there. Um, one, of the, one of the other stories that um, has become a sort of virtual fact over the years is this claim that Darlene and Mike were chased by a vehicle to the crime scene and that the man got out of the car and shortly before he opened fire he called out Darlene's nickname D. This story was in the book Zodiac, and a lot of people believed it was true and it was cited as fact over the years And the story was attributed to a specific individual, and that was Darlene's sister, Pam. And Pam claimed that she got this information from Darlene's cousin, Sue Ayers. And that was all we knew about it for years. And a lot of us uh, researching the Zodiac case tried to find Sue Ayers. And it wasn't until, I think, 2007,
1: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
3: When I was attending the premiere of a documentary about the case called Hunting the Zodiac in San Francisco, I was one of the guest speakers and I was talking about all these stories surrounding the life and death of Darlene Farron. And how a lot of these stories simply were not true and were not supported by any known facts. And afterwards, I went outside to have a cigarette. And this woman walked up to me. And she thanked me for the things that I said. And she also noted that some of the people in Darlene's family lacked some credibility. And I said, oh, are you a member of Darlene's family? And she said, yes, I was her cousin. And uh, my name is Sue. And at first, I didn't put two and two together because she had given me her married name. But I, I quickly figured it out and said, you know, did you used to be called Sue Ayers? And she said, yes. And I asked her about this story. And she was very clear when she stated that this story was not true at all, that not only had she never been to the hospital, she had never talked to Michael, Michael had never told her this story, and that she had never told this story to Pam. So she couldn't figure out why Pam would attribute this story to her, although she did note that she believed Pam lacked credibility. And that's an issue that's come up over the years when Pam later appeared on things like the Sally Jussie Raphael show, if you remember that uh, Mm. show from the (laughs) 80s and 90s. Um, She appeared on uh, an episode of that show with Robert Graysmith and some others, and she made many wild claims claiming that Darlene had witnessed a murder that she had known some of the other victims, and then Pam was also in shows like, uh, I believe, Hard Copy and A Current Affair, where she claimed that Darlene may have been involved in a satanic cult, and so you can see the progression of this over decades has built up to the point where there's this large barrier in between the truth and the average person who's interested in studying this case. You have to dig through mountains of nonsense and misinformation just to get down to these basic police reports, which show you that although it might be tempting to believe that Darlene Farron is somehow the key to solving this case, even if that is true, that is not what the evidence indicates.
2: You know, and, and I I just wonder why, um her in particular i guess it's just uh accessibility uh, and, and what about the um all this satanic stuff now and uh, uh is that just a trend and then everything could be satanic just because it's becoming popular again
3: well everything old comes around again right <laughs> <laughs> um when you you asked why her i think i should mention um you know, anytime there's an unsolved murder, especially in a smaller community, there's going to be a lot of gossip and a lot of speculation. But I think one of the things that may fuel this speculation is the notion that Darlene Farron had some sort of hidden, bizarre private life. And that's why we alluded to the character from Twin Peaks, Laura Palmer, because that was the basis for that whole series, was that there was this underbelly of corruption and everything to be discovered. When in reality... I think that mainly because Darlene, there are stories that Darlene was involved in extramarital relationships, and some of them are apparently based in some fact, while most of them cannot be confirmed, and a lot of them are just stories and rumors. Um, But that's contributed to this notion that she had some sort of private life and that someone from that private life may have killed her for some reason we don't understand. Um, uh, You know, I've... I've investigated a lot of these things on my own to the best of my ability. And, you know, one of the stories that's been used to uh, promote the notion that Darlene was somehow involved in something sinister which led to her death was the idea that she had too much money, you know, that she had too much money for someone who worked as a waitress and her husband worked as a, as a cook at a restaurant. So they purchased a house. And, of course, the conspiracy theory was that they couldn't afford this house and in order to put down the down payment and to make the payments on the house, they must have been getting extra income from somewhere and this led to speculation that Darlene was selling drugs and that that's where she was getting the extra money and that she used this drug money to pay for the house and then possibly she was out selling or buying or dealing drugs on the night she was killed and it was a drug deal that went bad or whatever. So that's where a lot of these Things start to come in. This these gaps in people's knowledge where they try to fill it in with their speculation. The speculation about Darlene having this extra money apparently started among her circle of friends and others. And then it was in a newspaper article, and then in a television show, and then in a book, and then it becomes a fact, and everybody believes it. When you know, when I talked to Dean Farron, he explained to me that their parents had helped them pay for that down payment that there was no extra money or anything like that. So that's where some of it comes from, but of course, obviously, that doesn't explain it all. I think it's largely because people are looking for an easy way to solve this case, and the easiest way to solve this case would be to link a victim to the killer and for there to be some traditional motive, like jealousy or revenge, or someone was trying to silence Darlene, keep her from talking about whatever murder she had witnessed and all that. But I think also at the time that these stories were circulating, in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, that was the height of America's interest in anything involved with Satanism, right? I mean, there was the the emergence of the Church of Satan with Anton LaVey and the, the Manson family and all these things which just made people think that Satanism and cult murders were becoming a a normal thing in society. And then, of course, you have the great satanic panic in the 1980s, which led to wrongful convictions and reputations being destroyed and accusations of mass child molestations by Satanists working in daycare centers and things. I mean, you remember all this. This was... For someone like me, who was growing up as a teenager in the 80s, it was terrifying the way that it was portrayed in the media. And you had all these experts who claimed that you know, they were working with the FBI and that there were ritual murders happening all across the country. And, of course, this led to things like the McMartin preschool trial where members of the McMartin family were wrongfully accused of molesting hundreds of children in a case that turned out to be a farce. Um, And of course, this is also what led to the convictions of the West Memphis Three for the murders of three little boys, um, Damien Echols and others, who have since been released from prison because I think a lot of people understood that the satanic panic played a large part in their conviction, the perception of them as murderers. So when you ask me, you know, why is this coming around again, I'm not sure why Satanism seems to becoming why Satanism has become once again a popular bad guy um, but I do know that of course you know a lot of people understand that in the late 1970s when there were serial killers popping up, there was always going to be some question about whether or not they were inspired by devil worship or things like that and then later on it was whether or not murderers were inspired by rock music you know like the Night stalker. Richard Ramirez was supposedly inspired ACDC, and they were Satanists, you know. And people believed that the band KISS, that the initials for the name of the band KISS stood for Knights in Satan's Service. This was very, very uh, predominant at that time. So in the late 1970s, when the Son of Sam showed up in New York, similar to the Zodiac in the sense that, He shot couples in parked cars, and he also wrote some letters, and he also gave himself a nickname. Um, There's a writer named Maury Terry who started writing a a series of newspaper articles for Gannett Newspapers, I believe. And then later, he developed all of this information into a theory presented in the book – about the case, which I'm drawing a blank about the, the ultimate evil, the ultimate evil by Maury Terry, where he claimed that the Son of Sam murders were linked to the Manson murders and to uh, satanic cults all across America. And of course, this theory was also included in the infamous television, I hate to use the word documentary by Geraldo Rivera, who is now part of Fox News, Um, But he had a show called Satan's Underground, where he went on and on about all these aspects of Satanism and American life and all these hidden corners of America where Satanists were stalking our children and leading children astray with rock and roll music and all kinds of things. And this was one of the most highly rated Uh, television documentaries of that time, even though it's an absolute farce if you watch it. It's just horrifying to see how this influenced America's opinions about all kinds of things, these false notions that Satanists were lurking everywhere. So it was only a matter of time before Geraldo Rivera hooked up with Maury Terry for the tabloid TV show Now It Can Be Told. And that show... Maury Terry, quote-unquote, investigated the murder of Darlene Farron and discovered the same old stories that had been lurking around for years and then used them to link Darlene to a satanic cult and possibly other murders. And, of course, the television show was syndicated and shown all over America, and more and more people believe that, even though none of this has any real basis, in fact, and there's no credible evidence to support it, but that never stopped people. Like Geraldo Rivera, as you know, who was infamous for the whole Al Capone's vault uh, thing, and and has basically had a long career of exploiting tragedy.
2: Well, you know, um, <laughs> I I don't know what to say about that. You know,
3: that's right how now. a lot of people feel when you bring up Geraldo Rivera. So
2: yeah, and well, and well, he was just kind of like the. Uh, commercial. You know. He was just going for a lot of flash and he couldn't oh, make yeah. it. he couldn't make it from intelligent conversation. He couldn't be a Donahue. Mm-hmm. Right. So he had to go for the flash. And
3: Yeah, at the in the nineties it was the height of his popularity. You know, when he had what somebody used a he had a some racist or skinheads on his show and one of them threw a chair at him and he broke his nose and yeah. you know <laughs> became this big thing in afternoon television and now it can be told was the at the height of shows like that, like A Current Affair and yeah. Hop Copy and things like that. And the Zodiac, you know, made the rounds on all those shows, but now it can be told did a two part thing on Darlene Farron. And the first, you know, episode was pretty crazy, but the second episode is when they just took it to this absurd level and tried to you know, they have these guys who look very earnest staring into the camera talking about how their investigation has led to evidence linking Darley, you know, none of it's true. It's just tabloid TV, and that's what Geraldo Rivera specialized in at the time.
2: Yeah, well, the Internet's made uh, tabloid the mainstream now. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. more mainstream than what they call mainstream media. If you're on a network, it's not as mainstream as uh, this stuff on the Internet, all these so-called media outlets so I don't know I, I'm sort of lost in the mix I you know, um, I just don't know why isn't it kind of victimizing the victim all over again
3: yeah in some ways you know it's horrible when you look back at some of these stories about Darlene Farron, especially when you consider where they came from uh, because for all intents and purposes The evidence indicates that Darlene Farron, for whatever her failures, shortcomings, whatever, she was just an innocent person sitting in a car with a friend when, for some reason, someone shot her, for no reason whatsoever. And that's bad enough for a family to lose someone they love, for a human being to be just exterminated like that for no reason whatsoever. But then for fifty years to have that story twisted twisted and twisted until she becomes people use the fact that she may have made mistakes in her life as some sort of reason to explain her death and that's got to be terrible for people that knew her and loved her to sit there and watch somebody saying you know well, she was promiscuous, so she was killed by somebody that she was you know, having an affair with or that she was doing drugs or selling drugs or that she was in a cult when there's no evidence to support any of that. It would be just like saying, well, so-and-so is a child molester without any evidence whatsoever. So the desire that some people have to find answers by re-victimizing Darlene Farron is really sad. And I've seen it go on for quite a long time. And You try to put the facts out there, but the facts are not as entertaining as this alternative fiction. And I think that's where a lot of this plays a part, especially when you start talking about how the Internet and all these other things want to exploit the most sensational aspects of any story. So if you tell somebody, well, here's the Zodiac story in a nutshell, some stranger attacked a bunch of people he didn't know for some unknown reason and then disappeared, and we don't know who he was. That's really not very satisfying. So it's it's much easier to cling to something that seems familiar, and people want to believe that the answer is somewhere there to be found and that it's going to be found in Darlene's life. And I just I, I feel bad for her. Husband Dean, and I feel bad for her children and for her family and friends who've had to watch this over the years. And, and it is like she's being killed over and over again. And her name is being trashed and dragged through the mud. When in reality, from everything that I've read and everything that I've learned from talking to people who knew her, including her family and Dean Farron, she was a, a really nice person. She was fun. She was outgoing. She was friendly. She had a lot of friends. She was very popular at her work. Um, and she was, I think Dean said, she was a free spirit. So the idea that she's been trashed in this way over the years is is really depressing because not only does she not deserve it, but there's no justification for it either.
2: Yeah, well, I, I. isn't that sort of the way that um, things are being investigated now? Like as far as all of the... Um, media outlets uh, and podcasts, like you look at all the true crime podcasts and everything, and and it goes from a conspiratorial point of view. So Mm -hmm. anytime you're listening to these shows, if they comment on the story or the crime, they take the victims such as this and um, it's something that they've done. Isn't it sort of the way we're doing it now? So if something comes out, you know, you see... Jussie uh, Jussie Smollett or whatever his name was you know uh, faking a a crime against himself so even in that case where it was true um, people look at the victims always now and have to investigate them it must be something they did
3: well yeah it's victim shaming victim blaming um and I think, too, it's it's easier for somebody to wrap their head around the idea that all these people who've been telling these stories must be telling the truth than it is to look at it like, no, it's more like a game of telephone, you know, where somebody told one story and then they got some attention for that and then that story sort of got absorbed and then other people see that and they react to it the same way. Some people, you know, there are people who have been involved in true crime stories victims investigators who would give anything to get out of that story and then for some inexplicable reason there are other people who are just dying to get into it and so one of the ways to do that is to make up a story and in today's society especially with the internet and the whole true crime entertainment complex now um It's a lot easier to get attention if you make up some sensational story. And some people might do it because they are aware of what they're doing, and other people it might just be some sort of thing that they're really not consciously trying to do, but they do out of some need for attention, and then it develops into something else, and before they know it, they're trapped in this lie they've been telling. But for whatever reason, it sure seems to be that two things. As you mentioned, victims are just under the microscope now and also people are very desperate for alternative explanations you know if you watch a show like making a murderer where i'm sorry if i'm offending anybody who's listening right now but i don't i don't understand how people can even think that there's something wrong with that case i mean there might be some issues about how evidence was handled or some professionalism or conflicts of interest or things like that. But the notion that Stephen Avery has been framed by all these police and everything, I just I just don't bop to that. But that's much more entertaining than, you know, a sixteen episode series about how this guy's guilty. So well
2: it comes down to personality because they don't like and I didn't either and I've interviewed him like Ken Kratz with the prosecutor in that case. Yeah. He's a complete asshole. And yeah. he's completely um, He's got an ego, and you know he's a guy on drugs, and he's, uh, you know, uh, texting all of the people he's, he's prosecuting, yeah, saying, "Hey, give me a hand job, and I'll let you go." He had that uh,
3: scandal that he, he yeah, yeah, he, and so that
2: makes him an ugly character. So therefore, everything he does is wrong, and and that's what I mean. Like if you're online and you say something you know, let's say a, a Democrat, and you say something bad against Trump, or if you're a Trump supporter, you say something bad against Hillary, it becomes, um, it's not the reaction to what you say, it's the reaction to the character, so uh, the, the reaction will be, oh yeah, well you're just this, or you don't do that, you know, it's, it mm-hmm. becomes an attack of its character. It's not so. I think it's the same sort of. This is a natural reaction in today's society. So um, yeah. it has to be. Oh, she was this, or she did that. She's got to be a Satanist, or she's got to be a, um, a horror. You know, it be, it becomes all this convoluted stuff. It can't just be straightforward. Wrong place, wrong time. Girl gets killed.
3: Yeah, and and also there's there's a need. That people have to believe that they can somehow crack the case, you know. Yeah. So that's a that's a level of uh, th- that's a thing that's become a major component of true crime entertainment now. Is that everybody's a detective and everybody's trying to solve these cases and stuff, and that can only happen, of course, if you believe that the original investigation somehow overlooks something. So. You know, when it's if it's making a murderer, you believe the cops set him up or whatever. Which I just I have, I don't have trouble believing that police officers could fabricate evidence or whatever. But in this case, to, to believe that you have to believe all these other things, and you have to also have to reject the evidence in the original investigation. And the same thing happens with Zodiac. You see, there's the movie Zodiac that came out in 2007. Took some of these stories about Darlene Farron to another level, and. Because those stories were presented in a big budget movie, they're given even more credence. People think it must be true. So you know, in that movie, you have Darlene picking up Mike, and they're driving around, and then they go to the the park, and they're sitting there, and a car drives up. And I'm trying to remember. I haven't seen the movie in a while, but I'm trying to remember. He says something like, I saw that car at Mr. Ed's which is a, another place they had been by earlier. And it gives the viewer the false impression that Michael Mageau said that a similar car had followed them from this other location, which of course is not what he told the police in the beginning. And he also, when it, when the is walking up to the side of the car, he looks directly up the killer and says something like, man, you really creeped us out. And then the man opens fire. In reality, There was a bright light being shined in Majot's face, and he himself told police that he did not get a good look at the killer, and he didn't say anything to him. And so, you know, years later, I interviewed Ed Russ, the guy who interviewed Michael Majot in the hospital. And, you know, he said, well, yeah, he told me that he never got a good look at the guy, and I didn't believe that he could identify the person that day. But then 20 years later, Michael Majot was shown a photograph of suspects. And one of them was the prime suspect, Arthur Lee Allen. And according to police, Mageau pointed to Allen's picture and said, that's him. That's the man who shot me. And they said, well, how sure are you on a scale of one to 10? And he said, well, it's an eight. And then this story was put around all over the internet that Michael Mageau had identified Arthur Lee Allen. And Arthur Lee Allen's parents owned a home that wasn't very far from the place where Darlene worked and then an informant who had originally accused Allen claimed that he had uh, that Allen had been at this painting party and I discussed that a little bit earlier and then he also claimed that Arthur Lee Allen had taken him to the restaurant and pointed out a way to him which by implication was apparently Darlene and you know somehow Pointed her out like this is somebody I know or I like or whatever, and these stories just become bigger and bigger over time. And it, it wasn't until, you know, I, I pestered the Vallejo Police Department to get more information about this, and they finally told me, Joanne West, uh, who was a captain, told me, well, here's the rest of the story. The rest of the story is that when Majou showed me these photographs and he said that's him, that's who shot me, he also pointed to the photograph of another individual in that photo lineup and said that the killer had a face like that person. Now, I've joked that that's basically saying that Arthur Lee Allen committed the crime while he was wearing someone else's face, but that's essentially what that story was, is that someone who was claiming that Michael Mageau had positively identified this person, there was a lot more to the story than that. So there's there are instances where there's more to the story than what you're being told, but this doesn't involve believing that police are involved in conspiracies or that the victims are somehow to blame, or that their decisions led to their deaths and things like that. There's just sometimes real practical stories there that need to be unearthed. But more often than not, even though I've had some success interviewing people and getting information that was previously unknown, more often than not... Some person who's sitting at home listening to a podcast or something and then getting on the Internet is not really going to contribute anything substantial to the study of that case. But that's where true crime entertainment is right now, is this you can be a part of the story. You can be a detective. Help me solve a murder kind of thing. And while there have been some amateur sleuths who have been helpful in unsolved cases over the years, that's not the norm.
2: Yeah. Well, there you said it. And uh, that's uh, another episode of the House of Mystery. And thank you for being here,
1: Michael Butterfield. Thanks for having me, Al. To find out more about our show, Uh guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com.
2: Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me?
3: Well,
0: good night.